Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. Hi, everyone. I'm Sarah Catherine, and I work on strategy and content for Climate One. We've been interviewing top experts on all things climate since our podcast got started over a decade ago. But now you're the ones we want to interview. Climate One would love your honest feedback on a survey we're doing to better understand our audiences. We're offering everyone who participates the chance to win one of eight $250 gift cards by going to climateone.org forward slash survey. We really look forward to hearing your thoughts there. Thanks again for taking our brief survey. Again, that's at climateone.org forward slash survey. I'm Greg Dalton. Today's episode was recorded with a live audience in late February. That was before coronavirus was declared a global pandemic and took over our daily lives. As that drama started to unfold with frightening speed, Americans were encouraged to take individual action for societal benefit. Young and healthy people were asked to stay away from bars, sporting events, and other gathering places because of the risks everyday social behaviors pose to the vulnerable people around us. As someone who thinks about climate change all day, every day, for me, this echoes the calls for everyone to cut down on carbon emissions because of a societal benefit larger than ourselves. One person practicing social distancing may not seem to have an impact on the spread of coronavirus, but when thousands of people do it, there's a real and measurable reduction in transmission rates. When it comes to climate, people also claim that voluntarily reducing your own footprint is one way for individuals to feel like they are taking meaningful action. What you're calling individual action, I think I might call consumption purification. Margaret Klein-Solomon is a former clinical psychologist and founder and executive director of the Climate Mobilization, a volunteer-powered organization that seeks to rapidly transform our economy to protect humanity and the living world. She's also author of the new book, Facing the Climate Emergency, How to Transform Yourself with Climate Truth. She believes that individual action means more than just behaving virtuously inside a broken system. Your money is not just sitting in the vaults of your bank and your credit cards. It's being leveraged over and over again for the economy that we don't want. Amanda Ravenhill is executive director of the Buckminster Fuller Institute and also co-founder of Project Drawdown, a comprehensive plan to reverse global warming. She's also an advisor to the Center for Carbon Removal and a fervent believer in the importance of relationships for getting people to act. How can an individual connect to various institutions in a system to have some effect and to know other individuals who can, they can join with to have a greater effect? George Lakoff is Professor Emeritus of Cognitive Science and Linguistics at the University of California, Berkeley, and Director of the Center for Neural Mind and Society. His many books include Metaphors We Live By, Moral Politics, and Don't Think of an Elephant. Our conversation about individual versus collective action began with Margaret Klein-Solomon describing how her career as a psychotherapist was interrupted by a climate epiphany. I used the defense of willful ignorance for much of my adult life. I knew enough about climate that I avoided it <laughs> as much as possible, but as I uh, grew up a bit and matured and uh, living in New York City through Hurricane Sandy and others, I couldn't be in denial anymore. And as I looked down the barrel of what our future actually held, I realized that the life that I had planned for myself, this lovely life with being a clinical psychologist, which is a wonderful field, uh, having a family and, you know, just a 
normal, lovely life, um, that it, it wasn't going to happen. That it, because uh, civilization would be coming undone m more and more due to drought, famine, state failure, chaos, that I, yeah, I had to grieve the future that I thought I had. But the wonderful thing about that is that when you, when you do confront reality and, you know, realize that, yeah, the future that I was told about growing up, all about progress and, you know, high hopes and possibilities, that that is not accurate. And instead, we are facing a catastrophe of almost undescribable proportions. When, when you do realize that, it opens up space um, to create another future, first for yourself and then for, for as many other people as you can. So uh, for me, when I, once I realized that the future I thought I had was ruined, I decided to go all in to do everything that I could to protect humanity in the living world. And that's why I started the climate mobilization. And we'll talk a little bit more about. It. Thank you for for sharing that, Amanda Ravenhill. Uh, you work for an institute, you know, named after a, a futurist, um, and you also think you think about individual trim tabs, how individuals can have a, an outsized influence. So tell us how you think about individuals having an outsized impact. Yeah. So uh, Buckminster Fuller Institute uh, is the the organization that I'm honored to run. And Buckminster Fuller was a trim tab himself. He was a technologist, kind of a techno-utopian, uh, but grounded in ecology. Uh, he was inspired by nature's design and really a humanitarian at heart. So he talked about making the world work for 100% of humanity. And um, he's known for the geodesic dome, which is really um, an artifact and a symbol of his underlying philosophy of doing more with less. So the dome is the structure that holds the most space with the least amount of material. Uh, he had many other artifacts that kind of are uh, symbols of a future that works for 100% of humanity. And uh, he talked about being a trim tab. So a trim tab is a rudder on a small rudder on a ship. Uh, it's kind of the acupressure point within a system where the least amount of effort can cause the maximum effect. So instead of going kind of pressing the front of a ship and expecting it to turn, uh, like so many of us are trying to do, it's about finding that point within the system where you can kind of almost play a trick, where you know uh, one little point of pressure can unlock so many um, kind of cascading benefits within a system. Uh, it can be used, obviously, for, for good or bad. If you kind of put the wrong trim tab on something, it can cause all these unintended consequences, uh, which is why it's so important to think in systems and ensure that we're trying to create maximum benefit, maximum co-benefits uh, with every step that we take. George Lakoff, you do a lot of writing and thinking about individuals, the human mind, and also think about systems. So as you think about climate change, individual action and collective action, how should we think about this? Oh, well, first of all, individual actions add up. You know, all collective actions have to do with collectivities of individuals. Uh, individuals affect each other. They affect each other in all kinds of ways. Who you know, who you talk to, uh, who believes what you believe, and so on. So uh, you can't really separate out collective action from individual action. Uh, collective action is made up of individual actions and individuals, individuals who know each other and form groups. So that is, uh, I don't see those as separate issues. But I, I struggle with like, um, people can act individually, but we want to think systemically. So how can a person think about a system that they can't control, but they're part of? Well, I do a lot of, of work on systemic thinking, but uh, I learned this uh, very early. I was an MIT undergraduate in uh, math and humanities, both double major. And the thing about the math and the physics that I learned there was that you got a, a feel for how, what the size of something was. For example, when I learned that the Earth had heated up by a degree, I said, oh my god. You have any idea how much heat it takes to heat something as big as the Earth by a degree? Mm -hmm. You know, it's just like, you know, when you go to MIT and you learn the math of those things, 
you say, that's amazing, that's horrific, that's, you know, I was overwhelmed by that, and I still am. So understanding scale, but it's, it's the scale, I think, often, Amanda Ravenhill, of, of the climate change thing that, that makes people feel so little and inadequate. It's so big that I feel like an ant in the universe that I can't do anything meaningful. Yeah, yeah, it's a hyper object. It's like impossible to actually put your hands around. Um, but I think we've been talking about it all wrong. Like we've been talking about it as permanent. And if there's one thing you'll remember from this evening is that we can reverse global warming. Uh, and I think it's something that we don't talk about enough. We can actually get to global cooling in uh, the, the most optimum scenario that we put together, which is um, with all technology that we have available today. And obviously there'll be even uh, better results with the new technology that's coming on board. But just with the technology we have today, we can achieve drawdown by 2040. Uh, drawdown is when we peak in uh, concentrations of, of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And then temperatures come down about 10 years later. You know, So I just, my friend just had a baby. When this baby is 30 years old, we're gonna have the coolest party ever because temperatures are gonna go down. And I think we've, Knowing that it's temporary changes everything. You know, it's still kind of hard to put your arms around, but knowing that it could be temporary if we all put our hearts and minds to it, of course. Um, really, I know for me, I'd been working in climate for many years. Uh, we started Drawdown in 2013. I'd been working with 350.org since 2009, and no one had told us that it was temporary, that it was possible to actually, you know, 350.org, obviously we're talking about getting uh, CO2 concentrations back down, but it wasn't in the, in the conversation that we can actually do this. And it's so, so critical uh, as we're grieving so much, and rightfully so, that we know that it's a temporary state and we can like put our hearts and minds to it um, and get there. George well, Lakoff, that's a very positive message. Why doesn't that get through more? Because the climate conversation does seem to be one way down. There's a reason for this that has to do with linguistics. The right-wing propagandist Frank Luntz invented the term climate change. The idea was it, it, to avoid global warming or global heating at all, which sounded like humans were responsible, and climate change sounded like, well, climate's kind of nice. You think of palm trees, and, uh, you know, uh, change just happens, right? So the idea there was to take out all of the human responsibility in the linguistics of that term. And the right wing went out. Once got his term, climate change, in, when uh, nobody talks uh, instead about global heating, uh, right now, if you talked about global heating every time instead of climate change, people would think about it very differently. When the Tubbs fire roared through Northern California in 2017, Jonah Gottlieb's house became a shelter for many of his teenage friends and their families. Gottlieb says he was already environmentally aware, but the harrowing experience jump-started his activism. He soon became an advocate for children's health and education and participated in a climate strike in Washington, D.C., we asked him how becoming an extremely active leader has affected his personal life as a 17-year-old attending high school. My typical day is I go to class, and then between every class and at lunch, I'll be sitting at the front desk or in the nurse's office or in a closet somewhere on my conference calls or writing emails or drafting legislation. And so it's kind of removed me from the whole school thing and part of that's a negative, you know, and always thinking, okay, well, if I could go to this party, but, you know, I have that bill to write, and if I don't do that, then that's another day out of the 10 years that we have left to take the action we need on the climate crisis. And so, because I want to maintain my relationships with all my friends here, you know, it forces me to have some work-life balance. Then when I interact with them, I, you know, have to put my work on hold and remember to enjoy my life. Getting to be on conference calls with people around the country every single day of the week has, you know, really brought me really close with so many amazing people and amazing organizers that I otherwise wouldn't have had the chance to meet. I have this entire community of activists around the country who are doing this fight with me. And I don't think people, you know, outside this movement realize how many young people there are just like me who are doing this work. There are thousands and thousands 
of young people who spend, you know, all their weekends, all their free time, all their lunches at schools on conference calls, talking to each other, talking to adults who get paid to do this work and doing it all, you know, not for money, not for the recognition, not for the clout, but because there's no other option because the adults are failing us. And so we know that it's up to us. And so it's showing that you don't have to be a big fancy lobbyist to impact your government. I mean, I can't vote in the California primary, and yet I'd argue that my work has changed way more people's opinions and gotten way more people registered to vote than, you know, my one vote ever could. That was 17-year-old Jonah Gottlieb, executive director and co-founder of the National Children's Campaign. And I just want to, anyone to think about when you were 17, if your thought was, do I go to a party or do I go write a bill? How many of us were in, <laughs> in that position? Personally, I was not in that position. Matt Ravenhill, he talks about uh, the importance of relationship. And it's interesting how he, he realizes there's some balance there. He's all in, but he needs to kind of uh, m maintain his relationships. I'd like to have your thought, because you think a lot about it as well, the importance of relationships in sustaining people involved in this activity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so a lot of the work we do at the uh, Buckminster Fuller Institute is around regenerative projects. Um, and so these are kind of nature-inspired ways of healing the earth, healing each other, healing ecosystems, healing the climate. Uh, and a central tenant to that is being in right relationship, uh, which is something you find a lot in indigenous uh, cultures and, and wisdom. And yeah, a lot of it is just kind of um, understanding that we are uh, not just islands unto ourselves, that we are all in dynamic relationship to one another. Um, and to appreciate and celebrate that, I think that's something that's been missing a lot from the movement, is the celebration of what is working and celebration of what we do have, celebration of a reverence for the interdependence that fuels life and all of the kind of, kind of opposites of the root causes that have caused climate change. Climate change is just one festering wound of a whole array of root causes. Um, and I think being in relationship to one another and, and preventing othering and racism and colonialism and all the other things that, that result from that othering um, is really critical. And so as we are looking at these climate solutions, how can we do it in a way that addresses those root causes? Um, and you know we're, we're kind of identifying those at Buckminster Fuller Institute right now with a new project that we're doing, which is called the Design Science Decade, uh, which is something Buckminster Fuller launched in 1965, and we've rekindled for the 20s. And a lot of that is about kind of um, looking at the root causes and then how do we kind of address those as we're moving forward and addressing these emergencies like climate and like others. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about me versus we. What matters more for climate action? Coming up, what role should fear and shame play in getting individuals and organizations to act? World leaders, people in positions of power, really all of us should be ashamed that we've let this get this far and this terrible. We are all perpetuating this system and this lie that it's somehow gonna be okay. That's up next when Climate One continues. Sponsorship for this podcast is from the new book, Cranky Uncle vs. Climate Change, an illustrated guide on how to talk to climate deniers. Dr. John Cook, founder of the website Skeptical Science, takes us on an educational tour through the world of climate disinformation. He provides insightful and often humorous tips for debunking popular myths. Our listeners ask me all the time how to talk to climate change deniers. Now I can suggest a copy of Cranky Uncle vs. Climate Change. It's a funny and informative read for people of all ages and great preparation for those holiday dinners with your own cranky uncle. Changing people's minds is a difficult task, but identifying and preventing the spread of misinformation with proven data and scientific evidence can be just as important. Pick up your copy of Cranky Uncle vs. Climate Change today everywhere books are sold. For more information, visit crankyuncle.com. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about individual versus collective action with George Lakoff, Professor Emeritus of Cognitive Science and Linguistics at the University of California, Berkeley. Amanda Ravenhill, Executive Director of the Buckminster Fuller Institute and co-founder of Project Drawdown. And Margaret Klein-Solomon, 
a former clinical psychologist and author of Facing the Climate Emergency, How to Transform Yourself with Climate Truth. Margaret explains how being a low-carbon consumer often doesn't translate into more important systemic changes. Doing this work, doing this political work, and just spending time learning about these issues and knowing these people, i it's kind of inevitable that I have taken some steps, whatever, we have solar panels and so forth, but that's not politics and it's not how we're going to win. And what you're calling individual action, I think I might call, yeah, like consumption purification, whereas what Justin is doing is individual action, right? He He's one person, but what he's doing is leadership, right? He's building his own power and he's showing his peers that they also have power to transform the broken system rather than to try to be the best, most pure consumers within a broken system. Amanda Ravenhill, you put it a little bit differently. You think that the footprint, the idea we everyone goes around thinking they're about their carbon footprint, maybe buying offsets, agonizing over every many decisions. It's a real source of contention in, in my home with my wife. Like, really? Do we have to, like, every single thing, think about a life cycle analysis of everything that goes in the refrigerator? Really? Um, Amanda, you think that the footprint is is important and reductionist. What do you mean by that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so a lot of us are talking about kind of moving to zero and moving to having, you know, zero carbon footprint, war zero is one of the metaphors that people are using now. Um, And yeah, I think it's just um, looking at doing less bad and doing less bad is not going to get us there. Um, And so an alternative would be, what's your carbon handprint? What are you able to do that other people aren't able to do um, that's kind of proactive, that you're creating more good in the world? Um, I think more of us are, uh, we're more capable than we know. And uh, we have access to capital. We have access to people. We have access to all sorts of privilege. If you make more than $35,000 a year, you're in the global economic 1%. Uh, your money is not just sitting in the vaults of your bank and your credit cards. It's being leveraged over and over again for the economy that we don't want. Uh, there's a lot that you're doing, uh, maybe passively, um, with your cash and with all sorts of things that is, it's a different, uh, mentality than just trying to go to zero. Uh, it's really saying like, what can I, what can I put out there in the world? The question of what can I do has always been part of the conversation about energy and environment. In 2001, Vice President Dick Cheney weighed in on the virtue of individual energy conservation in the context of national policy. Already some groups are suggesting that government should step in to force Americans to consume less energy, as if we could simply conserve or ration our way out of the situation we're in. Now, conservation is an important part of the total effort, but to speak exclusively of conservation is to duck the tough issues. Conservation may be a sign of personal virtue, but it is not a sufficient basis all by itself for sound, comprehensive energy policy. Vice President Dick Cheney addressing reporters in 2001. George Lakoff, personal virtue. I'd like you to address the personal virtue, because a lot of people go around there. Vir- there's lots of virtue signaling these days. I'm, I, you know, I'm doing my part on climate. I'm a virtuous person. What's wrong with that? that exactly the issue. Uh, it isn't personal virtue. It's being part of a community, knowing uh, community institutions and the values of those institutions and what they do, uh, knowing how communities and cities and states operate in general which is more than personal. Uh, These are political things that are important. The idea that uh, the virtue is in politics a lot. And the question is, in what politics? Where in politics? Who has what levers? Uh, And then what other civic institutions are there? You know, these, the question is, what are the institutions involved and what system of institutions uh, matter and how can an individual uh, connect to various institutions in a system to have some effect and to know other individuals who can, they can join with to have a greater effect? 
Margaret Solomon, I'd like to ask you about you. You changed your sense of self when you had the transition you you talked about. Um, I'd like to hear your thoughts on on people's self identity as it pertains to what George has said. So in this country, we're told from I mean basically birth that we are defined by our individual achievements and status and purchases, buying power, and that we're just individual actors. And that mentality is the same mentality if I say, okay, climate change is real and I am going to, you know, get only um, zero carbon food and, and clothes and, yeah, my whole lifestyle. You're still in that individual frame of reference. But what um, I did is realize that Yes, of course, we're one individual. The only person I can fully control is myself. But what if we have a bottomless responsibility to protect humanity and the living world and stop this catastrophe from fully unfolding? What if we are the heroes that we've been waiting for? It's really a very different core concept of of who we are and how we relate to each other that if if we're responsible for solving this then the idea of competition like for example between organizations or organizers forget it it's who needs that what we need is to build power until we can create unbearable pressure for our politicians and institutional leaders and turn this ship around uh, radically and as soon as possible. And Margaret, you pointed out to me something that I, I, I remember experiencing, but didn't really realize that uh, at the moment that there was a particular, before the uh, midterm elections in November of 2018, there was uh, Rebellion Day 1 in the UK. There was the Sunrise Movement occupying Nancy Pelosi's office. Tell us about the significance of those things coming together. And then I'm thinking about what might happen in this, this fall with the other, another election. Yeah. So for the last several decades, the dominant paradigm in the climate and environmental movement has been gradualism, meaning let's make small tweaks to our system over years and decades that kind of don't bother people that much. And we it's very polite and technocratic. Um, and in November of 2018, in the same week, Extinction Rebellion shut down five bridges in London and the Sunrise Movement sat in with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in Nancy Pelosi's office calling for a Green New Deal. And it, it was like the earth moved because that was when we really saw that gradualism as a paradigm is it's failed and it's over. It, it leave it, leave it in the past because only emergency speed, transformative change of all of our systems can protect us. And the only way we're going to achieve those is building a movement that tells the truth, acts like that truth is real and builds power. We're talking about uh, individual and collective action at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. My guests are J George Lakoff, author and professor emeritus of cognitive science and linguistics at University of California, Berkeley. Amanda Ravenhill, executive director of the Buckminster Fuller Institute. And Margaret Klein-Solomon, a former clinical psychologist and founder and executive director of the Climate Mobilization and Advocacy Group. Uh, George Lakoff, we've been talking a lot about youth and power. Uh, Greta Thunberg, time person of the year, incredibly powerful. Uh, what is the power of Greta? How do you dare? <laughs> Shame. Shame. Absolutely. She said, you are in charge of my future. How do you dare make it worse? Not only my future, but the future of everybody my age. How do you dare make it worse? That's power. And I thought also the, that she really called out adults who, who sort of pat kids on the head and say, you give me hope, you'll solve it. And she's like, no, you know, you solve it now. Don't wait for us. Right. That's a cop out. Exactly. It is a cop out. Margaret, I'd like to get your thoughts on, on the, you know, shame. Oftentimes I've learned that shame is not a great motivator. That's like people feeling bad about themselves. That's not motivating. So do you agree with the, the 
Greta's power flows from shame and your thoughts about shame as a psychologist. Greta tells the truth and she doesn't worry about whether that is making people feel uncomfortable or whether it's hurting their feelings or really anything. It's just the truth because that is so important on its own. So whether or not people have a positive or negative reaction to shame, I don't think that's the defining question. Um, people, world leaders, people in positions of power, really all of us should be ashamed that we've let this get this far and this terrible. And obviously there's varying degrees of responsibility, um, but through passivity, I mean, merely just living your life as normal we are all perpetuating this system and this lie that uh, it's somehow going to be okay or we're not uh, going to just hit the apocalypse in just years or very few decades. So the reason that that's so hard to talk about for almost everyone is because we're so socially attuned and we worry like, Oh, if I talk about the re the truth of the climate, then this person's going to feel uncomfortable and this person might feel guilty or ashamed and this person might want me to, you know, leave the dinner party or or whatever. I, they're going to think negative things about me. And Greta's just over it. I mean, she does not care. She's just telling the truth. Do you ever censor yourself in social situations? <laughs> not really. <laughs> Amanda, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty I'm pretty over it myself. <laughs> Amanda, did you ever censor yourself in social situations about climate? Like, oh, I don't I, I can't go there now. I just can I just live in this little bubble of denial for the next 30 minutes? No, not really. No, I don't. I, I don't like to live. I mean, there's so much good news around it. I think I have a different view than most people. Like the, the crow's nest upon which I stand on this spaceship Earth is uh, there's so much good news from where I'm standing. And I see climate as really a reason for this like global renaissance and changing so much of what we do, you know, and bringing about healing for all sorts of different systems. Um, you know, I, I like to call this time the awkward era because uh, the good news is getting better and the bad news is getting worse and it's kind of hard to know you're like awkwardly in between what's going on um and you know i think if we feed ourselves with the good news and really see that potential of this moment climate change is bringing us all together it's making us see that we're all one global community it's helping us understand systems there's all of these my husband here calls me the queen of silver linings so this is just <laughs> my character um but i really do think that like i don't censor myself around climate because as i'm sharing about it it's kind of like it's our inevitable evolution we're we're finally looking to you know appreciate the health of ecosystems and you know, what we found with Drawdown was it's a $74 trillion business opportunity, too. So depending on what you kind of focus on in terms of, you know, the profits that you're looking to have in the world, whether that's financial profits or, you know, becoming better um, healers as a species, there's so much good news around it that there's no need to censor myself. What is this business opportunity that some people over here might want to hear about? <laughs> Electric vehicles is the number one business opportunity, according to the, you know, the model that we oh, created. Yeah. Um, but there's so much agroforestry. If you add up all the different agroforestry solutions and draw down, that becomes the number one solution. And, you know, that's per acre. You can sequester as much carbon as uh, the average American emits in a year. There's so much uh, that we can do that increases the livelihoods of systems, that increases the nutrients in our bodies, that, you know, increases the health of the microbiome in our gut and also the microbiome of the soil uh, and really brings the earth back to life. You know, we're, we're down right now, obviously, with a mass extinction. 80% of insects are gone by biomass. Um, but we have to take that long view of this being temporary. If we get stuck in the rut of not having as much life, then it'll, it'll be a self-fulfilling prophecy. But if we know that it's temporary and we can take this longer view of kind of restocking the earth with life um, and in doing so, healing so many other things, then... Yeah, it's a it's a completely different narrative than what you're typically hearing. In class. Can I call you when I get down and you just say that to yeah. me and that? Can you just kind of like, yeah, uh, 
George Lakoff, that was a classic reframe. She took something that, you know, uh, so how can other people, you know, reframe it the way that don't have Amanda's innate optimism um, and, you know, reframe climate as a huge wealth creation, joyful opportunity? Uh, basically, uh, it's, a, it's a technical linguistic problem. That is, how do you take what you have and put it into everyday language uh, with everyday issues? things that people encounter in their everyday lives so that they notice it. Hmm. If something's not named, if there isn't a word for it, you're not going to notice it. So it's important that we have words for all those things you're talking about as they occur in everyday language, not just as technical terms, but as part of what you see around you. Uh, that is a matter of language creation. And language creation exists, it's there. Every advertiser is involved in language creation. And, uh, you know, basically, um, we need to be uh, understand what kind of language creation we need to be engaged in, what language we have to create, how do we get it out there, what are the ways to do this, how does the media help, and so on. I mean, there's, this is... Um, you know, a technical thing that has to do with uh, language and the way language gets into the population through the media. So, uh, you know, unless you're talking about the media and how the media changes and how language, new language and new topics get into the media, you're not going to succeed. George Lakoff, there's a lot of talk about hope and optimism. What's the difference? Uh, hope says there's something impeding you. Hope says there's something in the way, and you've got to get past it. Optimism just says, look ahead. You don't have to assume that there's something impeding you. Just go and do what you need to do. Optimism has to do with vision, opta. Right? Look at what's ahead and do it, versus hope where there is something against it, and you have to, get, have to overcome what's against it. So how do you feel about our climate prospects? We need to be optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> And, and look, look, it's very clear that there are things against it. You know, the coal and gas and oil industry is against it. There are lots of uh, institutions in society that are against this. There are political parties. There's at least one political party that's against it, you know, and that's supporting uh, the opposite view. And the question is, how do you overcome all of those, those issues? Well, I think, you know, um, you need to know what, what the problems are, but you need to be optimistic and just go for it. You're listening to a conversation about what kind of action really matters for solving the climate challenge. This is Climate One. Coming up, getting past the individual you and me in order to maximize the potential of we. I'm so dedicated to this that I got a tattoo to my shoulder in the form of a bird emerging from an egg. We're you know, far more capable than we know. We're hatching into this new uh, paradigm of the me, 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 and the egg to the we collective consciousness. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Climate One records many of our conversations with a live audience at our modern and green new home on the waterfront in San Francisco. Due to the coronavirus, we've suspended public events through April and possibly beyond. When we resume public events and you happen to come to San Francisco, I invite you to come check us out. Our programs are open to the public and listed on climateone.org. We're talking about individual versus collective action with George Lakoff, Professor Emeritus of Cognitive Science and Linguistics at the University of California, Berkeley. Amanda Ravenhill, Executive Director of the Buckminster Fuller Institute and co-founder of Project Drawdown and Margaret Klein-Solomon, founder and executive director of the Climate Mobilization and author of the new book, Facing the Climate Emergency, How to Transform Yourself with Climate Truth. As a former therapist, Margaret knows how people have to confront some very difficult feelings in order to engage with climate. Almost everyone in this country censors and judges their feelings. And this is, as a therapist, one of the main things that I worked with people on is to not, not do that, to approach all emotions with compassion, curiosity, and 
lack of judgment. There's no, there's no such thing as a thought crime or a feeling crime. The only thing that has a moral weight in the world is our actions. So paradoxically, by allowing ourselves to experience our whole range of emotions, even bad ones or irrational ones, we actually gain the most control over our actions because we can bring those feelings into a synthesis with our rational mind and our values and choose how we act. So everybody censors their feelings to, to some degree. And a lot of that is gendered. What, what we were told growing up, uh, you know, boys don't cry, uh, you know, be a man, get over it or, and, you know, girls shouldn't be mean or angry are two kind of typical emotional patterns. It's different for every person, but the, what's really important is that all of us feel everything. Again, there's just no such thing as a, as a wrong feeling or a bad feeling. And that's so important when we're dealing with this climate emergency that makes us feel, I mean, anger, rage, despair, grief, terror, shame, guilt, uh, everything. And so I, I think that kind of emotional overload is a big part of why so many people do kind of turn off, shut this out of their mind. So if we get more comfortable just with the experience of strong feelings, it can help us really be more effective um, in, in facing this truth and being a leader. That was a long list of emotions. Joy wasn't in there. <laughs> uh, there's definitely joy. I experience joy all the time. And it comes from working on this problem, using my capabilities, um, and doing it with some of the most wonderful people in the world. Yeah, there's joy. George Lakoff, I want to ask you about uh, the authoritarian parent and the nurturing parent. You've written about this. There's different paradigms, the way different political parties see the world, the way they, they conduct themselves. And I want you to address that and then talk about the 2020 election. <laughs> it's right there. Um, we have an understanding of the nation as a family. And what that means is that the kinds of parenting that en enters into families uh, metaphorically projects onto polit national politics. And uh, right now, we have a president who is, has all of what I would call the strict father values. He is in charge. What does a strict father mean? The strict father says, I define what is right and wrong. And not only that, I reward what is right and I punish what is wrong. And the punishment has to be painful enough to make people stop doing what's wrong, make children stop doing what's wrong. That's what a strict father does. And you map that onto politics and there is Donald Trump, <laughs> you know, uh, straightforward. And um, it's funny, I, I had written about this and I got a note from Donald Trump Jr. <laughs> who said I didn't have a strict enough father. <laughs> Just thought you'd enjoy that. And some people would say the, the antidote to the strict authoritarian father would be a nurturing parent. Do you see a nurturing uh, antidote opposite to that in the democratic field? Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> I mean, you know, or, I mean, or there Michelle are Obama. Yeah. No, no, or, or even Barack. I mean, yes, these are caring people who act so that the caring works. You know, Nancy Pelosi is the one of the most effective political figures of our time. If you really keep track of all the stuff she has done, it's pretty amazing. And it's there to, to, to care for people. Now, caring has to do with a couple of things. One, it has to do in a democracy with providing public resources for everyone. That's what uh, you know, caring within a democratic system is about. Uh, the other part is a government of, by, and for the people. You know, uh, Lincoln got it right. <laughs> <laughs> 
So you have a government of, by, and for the people, and a government that provides uh, you know, public resources for private life and private enterprise. Those are what government is about, or should be about. And if they're not about that, there's something wrong. We're going to go to our lightning round, and I invite each of our guests to write yes or no quickly to uh, true or false to these questions, beginning with George Lakoff. True or false, liberals hate repeating themselves. Uh, yes, true. Uh, and it's sad. Uh, conservatives know repetition is the key to a winning message. You have to have repetition. Amanda Ravenhill, true or false, empowering women and family planning are two large climate levers that people don't know or talk about enough. True. True or false, Margaret Klein-Solomon, you used to live your life as a resume polisher. True. <laughs> and also for Margaret, now you're a climate warrior. True. Uh, Amanda Ravenhill, true or false, anything that feeds apathy is dangerous. True. Margaret Klein-Solomon, a person who has a big carbon footprint and claims they care about climate is a hypocrite with low credibility. Uh, sometimes true. <laughs> uh, true or false, George Lakoff, you have made personal sacrifices to reduce your carbon footprint. It's an interesting question. <laughs> true, true. For a number of reasons. You wrote a book because, about that, I know. But, right. let, but, <laughs> but, but I mean, because I don't see it as sacrifice. I mean, I see it as a way of life. So it's about the frame. It's about that. <laughs> True or false, George, you feel guilty about your personal carbon footprint? No. Last one for Margaret Klein-Solomon. Some people view your organization as full of jerks. <laughs> Sometimes. All right, let's give them a round of applause for getting through the lightning round. If you're just joining us, I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking with George Lakoff, Amanda Ravenhill, and Margaret Klein-Solomon at Climate One about individual action and collective action, what we can do to address climate change individually and collectively. We're going to go now to our audience questions. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, my name is Matt Renner. Uh, George, I just wanted to get up and Hi, thank Matt. you. Hey, and tell you how much I love you and appreciate you. <laughs> and Good to see your, you, man. Your class, just speaking of individual action, set me on my personal path. And I, I wanted to give you a softball uh, you know, I want you to just talk a little bit about your legacy in terms of the impact one person can have in a lifetime and uh, from a place of just really appreciating everything you've done for me. Well, Matt is a very good example of one of the more than 10,000 students I've had over 50 or more than 50 years of teaching. Uh, you know, when you teach, I've taught at, taught at Berkeley for 44 years and uh, at, at Harvard and Stanford before that. And, uh, you know, 51 years of teaching means you teach a lot of people. And in a way, it doesn't matter. You know, people would think, um, well, what I do is I teach cognitive science, I teach linguistics, and I teach application of that to everyday life and politics, right? And when I talk about politics, the people in my department got very unhappy uh, and, uh, you know, as I said, I got denied promotions for writing books that talked about politics. Too bad. And, um, you know, but the point was that uh, I've had over 10,000 people like Matt in, in these classes. That is an amazing thing to be able to do, to be able to teach 10,000 students in, over, in 50 years is a wonderful thing. You know, it's a, it, it, I couldn't think of a better way to spend my life. And George, it's not just your students. I would cons I never took a class from you, but I consider myself one of your students. I've learned a lot from you, and I've interviewed thousand people uh, in climate, and I've learned a lot from you as well. So thank you for that. Next question, welcome. Thank you. Hello, my name is Shauna Rappaport. Uh, this question is for Amanda Ravenhill, uh, whose middle name, by the way, is literally Joy. Um, I'd love to also hear Margaret's thoughts on this question as well. And it comes back actually to the subject and title of this evening's event, which is me versus we. And I think there were threads that address this, but specifically, I would love to hear a little bit about, um, like, for example, I work a lot with many of the biggest companies in the world on advancing climate progress. How do we 
actually shift the paradigm while we're still existing in this current system of maximizing short-term profits, maximizing individual gain to one that truly includes the collective we? Um, thank you, Shauna. So uh, Buckminster Fuller did this really great analysis uh, around 1970, and he said that we actually have the technological capability of taking care of everyone on the planet at a higher standard of living than any have ever known, and that it no longer has to be you or me, but really we. Uh, he said it would take about 50 years, do the math, uh, from 1970 for us to kind of wake up to this new reality and that we would build all the kind of right tools for the wrong reasons first. And so I think we're, you know, we're far more capable than we know at kind of translating what we have now into this new paradigm. And I think we're we're far, much farther along uh, than we can consider. Um, I'm so dedicated to this that I got it tattooed to my shoulder in the form of a bird emerging from an egg, uh, which is a story that Buckminster Fuller tells uh, about kind of this state change that we're going through, you know, similar to water freezing or a caterpillar uh, turning into a butterfly, where this egg emerging, we're, you know, far more capable than we know, we're hatching into this new uh, paradigm of the me, 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 and the egg to the we collective consciousness. Margaret? Yeah. Um, the only thing that I think I really want to add is I think what ultimately is going to get us there is the understanding that on our current path, our current um, narcissistic, individualistic uh, path, lies only devastation. That, that we we really don't have a choice, um, or actually we do have a choice, but the choice is collapse or transform. And so what has previously been viewed by many as altruism versus selfishness, these what we're, what we're realizing when we see what's happening on our planet is that Really, there's only one way for any of us, even individually, to have a future. And that is for all of us to come together. And I love the quote, but yet to make a planet that works for everyone. You've been listening to Climate One. We've been talking about individual versus collective action with Margaret Klein Solomon founder and executive director of the Climate Mobilization and author of Facing the Climate Emergency, How to Transform Yourself with Climate Truth. Amanda Ravenhill, executive director of the Buckminster Fuller Institute and co-founder of Project Drawdown. And George Lakoff, professor emeritus of cognitive science and linguistics at the University of California, Berkeley. This Climate One conversation was recorded in late February before coronavirus was declared a global pandemic. As I'm recording this in San Francisco, officials have just issued an order to shelter in place, which will impact our ability to produce our podcast and radio show. We have pulled excellent programs from our archives for the next couple of weeks. We're planning in future episodes to explore how the response of humans, societies, and governments to coronavirus informs what we know about the response to climate disruption. Though the causes are totally unrelated, there are some scary and fascinating parallels around how we cope with societal disruption, evaluate risk, and mobilize rapidly to address a global problem. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. Steve Fox is director of advancement. Devin Strolovich edited the program. Our audio team is Arnav Gupta, Mark Kirshner, Justin Norton, and Andrew Stelzer. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.